many of you have seen the 2006 movie, The Pursuit of Happiness, with Will Smith? All right, a bunch of you have. Well, the movie is about the arduous and beleaguered life of Chris Gardner based on a true story, a caring father but unsuccessful medical device salesman. Now, if you've seen it, you know that the title is a little deceiving. Uh, it is anything but a happy movie. Uh, rather, from the beginning of the movie, you get to see the downward slide of Chris Gardner as he experiences one difficulty in life after another. At first, the sales job fails because of a bad investment choice that he makes, and he loses all of his family's savings. This, in turn, uh, hinders his ability to earn an income, which he and his wife need to take care of their son. This ongoing struggle eventually leads her to leave him and the son, moving out of state, making him a single dad. He also loses his home during this time, and he still can't find a job that will provide for him and his son uh, as a result, and so he ends up being homeless. Now, during all of this, he encounters an opportunity uh, at an investment firm, which he feels he's qualified for, but the job's not available, so he has to agree to a non-paying internship. And so he does with the hopes of catching a break, but doesn't know how long he will have to go without income in order to do so. And in the meantime, he is left to literally wander the streets of San Francisco at night with his young son in tow. And the pinnacle of the journey, or rather the nadir of the journey, is when he and his son have to sleep in the bathroom at the Bay Area Rapid Transit Station at night to stay out of the elements and the cold. And there he is, sitting on the floor of the bathroom, holding his son, weeping over his lot in life and the suffering that he is enduring. So what you see in the video at the end that you watch is tears welling up in that room when he's offered the job is the emotion that is built in him like a volcano over months and years of suffering and struggle trying to get where he wants to go and it finally paying off. It's also the end of the movie that you saw. And so I remember sitting there in the theater 13 years ago, and the end of the movie came. I was really disappointed because <laughs> I had sat through two hours of misery watching his life go down the tubes and only got that two-minute payoff at the end, and I felt like I was shortchanged. Well, if I thought that my two hours of sadness and misery in the theater were discouraging, or if Chris Gardner's life experiences during the movie uh, and the fairly short section of his entire life uh, that were revealed to us and with the difficulties that were there, this morning we are going to meet two people who waited and suffered much, much longer than me, than Will Smith or Chris Gardner did. This morning we are continuing with our sermon series, The Coming King. In the weeks prior, we've seen Mary and Joseph were confused by The Coming King. We've seen the Magi searching for the coming king. The shepherds were surprised to hear of the coming king. And this morning we will meet a couple people mentioned briefly in the Bible in the Christmas story who were waiting for the king, which is the title of our message today. Now the two people we're going to meet and learn about are named Simeon and Anna. Simeon is a prophet and Anna is described in the book of Luke as a prophetess. They both spend most of their days in the temple serving Yahweh, which is the name of God in the Old Testament, and the people of Israel. They're very old, having lived long and hard lives in Jerusalem. Anna is close to 100, 
And some traditions say that Simeon is significantly older than 100. You'll understand why when you read his passage here in a bit. Well, after waiting a long, long time and enduring much sadness and hardship in their lives, these two finally get their moment of happiness. When they see the baby Jesus and God reveals to them in that moment exactly who this child is. But before we get to that, let's review what their lives have been like up until this moment. Now, historically speaking, life has always been difficult for the Jewish people. Since God set Abraham apart in the book of Genesis and said, through you I'm going to make a great nation, the Jews have suffered time and again. They've had some high points, but they've had some very, very low points. Generation after generation, not just in the past hundred years, as many of us might be solely aware of. Their struggle was especially severe in the hundred years prior to Jesus' birth, which coincidentally would have been the years where Anna and Simeon were born and raised and grew up in Israel. Here's a little background about that time period. From roughly 100 to 63 BC, a 37-year period, a civil war raged in Jerusalem and in Judea uh, as what remained of the Greek Empire, which had been conquered by Alexander the Great, met its final demise and continued the last portions of that empire fell apart of which Jerusalem and Judea were a part. As the civil war raged, obviously, the non-combatants in Israel, the Jewish people, were caught up in that. And they suffered as warring factions came back and forth through the city. Then in 63 BC, Rome is conquered. Rome conquers Jerusalem and brings all of their terror and destruction with them. Rome is not known for being treating non-Romans well, uh, if you are a conquered people. And over the coming decades, under Roman rule, thousands and thousands of Jews were imprisoned, tortured, and crucified. Many Jews died brutally because of the Roman sword. Thousands and thousands more were sold into slavery throughout the Roman kingdom. And the fittest became gladiators that were sent off to fight in the arenas all around the Roman Empire. Then a civil war breaks out in the Roman Empire in the mid-century between Pompey and Caesar, which you might have read about and remember from your ancient history class. This leads to more unrest and bloodshed because Jerusalem is caught up in this battle raging around the empire. And during this time, Jerusalem managed to wrestle itself free from Rome, not knowing what the future is going to hold. Rome reestablishes itself. And in 37 BC, once again, Jerusalem is under siege at the hands of Rome. They conquer the city, and they lay waste to the people in the city, pillaging and killing all in their path, once again. Then, once this chaos is over, they put in place a king, a man named Herod, who is not Jewish. Uh, he's appointed by Rome to be the king of Israel. He establishes a secret police force to monitor and terrorize the Jews whom he does not trust and who do not like him. He taxes the people terribly, beyond their means to pay. And the Roman army stationed in the region to maintain control continue to reign their reign of terror of the Jewish people around the countryside at will, day after day, year after year. These are dark days for the Jews. Even worse than Chris Gardner sleeping in the bathroom in the Bay Area Rapid Transit Station with his son. But then something happens. Something unexpected. Jesus is born. In a manger, in a stable, with all the fanfare that we've talked about in the weeks prior, 
shepherds, angels. Jesus is born. And shortly after his birth, because he is the firstborn son to Mary and Joseph, he needs to go to Jerusalem and to the temple. And so let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to Luke chapter 2 to get some background of this passage so we can understand exactly what is happening when we meet our two people today. Luke 2, 22 through 24. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, Mary and Joseph, brought him, Jesus the baby, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. This was a sacrifice for Mary and Joseph because they were too poor to afford a lamb. So they were allowed to sacrifice birds instead of the lamb, which might have been the normal sacrifice for folks of means of that day. So we see that Jewish law and the requirements of the law brought Mary, Joseph, and the baby to the temple just a short time, a month or two months after he is born. And it is here in the temple that we first meet Simeon, the very old prophet. We continue in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, which means Messiah. This verse here and Christian tradition has led some parts of the Christian faith, the Orthodox Church specifically, to believe that Simeon was significantly older than 100 years, 150, maybe even 200. Miraculously kept alive because God had made a promise. And why was this man continuing to live and endure? The Bible doesn't say that. That's tradition that some parts of the church believe. Verse 27, we continue. And he, Simeon, came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God, and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all, in all of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So what do we learn about Simeon in that passage right there? Well, let's summarize some of the things. First, we read that he's righteous and devout. He is faithful. He is steadfast. However old he is, and it's old, he continues to be God's man, to serve the Lord. Two, it says he's waiting for the consolation, which is the Messiah, the deliverer, the rescuer. That's part of what Messiah meant. It's part of the role Messiah would play. And he was told by God specifically, you will see the deliverer come. And so when it says he's waiting for consolation, he's waiting to see the Messiah. And thirdly, we see that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Three times it references Simeon being filled with or led by or being acquainted with the Holy Spirit in three verses. Now, we might not think much of this, except in this day before Jesus' death and what happened with Pentecost after that, the Holy Spirit did not necessarily reside with his people. He came and went without our ability to control or know or have any guarantee of. 
But Simeon specifically was one who was filled with and led by the Spirit, which is very special and significant for him in that day. And then finally, he acknowledges that his life purpose has been fulfilled. He was told by God he would see the Messiah, and once he sees, the Lord tells him, the Spirit tells him who he's seeing, and he says, praise be to God, I can depart in peace. What a beautiful way to finish his time on this earth. How many of us, hopefully at the end, will have an opportunity when we know the Lord has said, Jeremy, your time is now, to have the ability and faith to say, Lord, I depart in peace. Thank you. Right after Simeon, we're introduced to another elderly person there in the temple who meets the baby Jesus. We pick this up in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that, at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna is also very devout before the Lord. She's described as worshiping, fasting, and praying night and day, always at the temple, always there where God was, where the people of God were. That was her devotion. She too recognizes this baby, this infant Messiah, and begins to give thanks to God for what he has accomplished in the birth of this child, in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now here, the author of the Gospel, Luke, led by the Holy Spirit, gives us the stories of an old man and an old woman at the end of the Christmas story. Now they are only mentioned in this one place in the Bible. The other three Gospels do not mention them. Now that's not uncommon. The different Gospel writers recorded different aspects of the life of Jesus. Some of them recorded all recorded the same aspects of his life. But it's only in the book of Luke that we meet these two people. And they're not mentioned again. And yet their stories, similar, the both of them, together, have an importance for us to learn from today. First, let's not overlook that the Holy Spirit came to both an old man and an older woman regarding the birth of Jesus. This is intentional, as God affirms women time and again in the Scriptures. If you don't know, women were oft considered a subclass of people in this time and throughout large portions of history, unfortunately. But God was not going to be persuaded by that. The risen Christ appeared to whom first? To the women who loved and adored him and whom he loved. And God has affirmed women throughout the scripture when society around them did not. And so here, it's not just Simeon, but it's Anna. It's the both of them together. The Lord affirming, I know you. I know you and the Savior comes for all. So, having been there, having seen him, having waited a long time through very terrible circumstances in their lives, what are the common themes with Simeon and Anna that God would want us to understand today? With the rest of our time, we're going to talk about that. The first is this. They had to wait a while for their moment of happiness. They had to wait a long time. 
as we talked about, God in his sovereign plan chose Simeon and Anna as witnesses to the Messiah's birth. Now, he could have chosen a 20-year-old. He could have chosen a 40-year-old. Instead, he chooses an 80-something and a 100-plus-something. Now, why does he do this? Well, it's as if the light of Jesus will shine brightest for those who have struggled and waited the longest and the hardest. Could this be possible? Could it be possible that a comfortable life with all pleasures experienced and all hopes fulfilled produce the longing for the Messiah that we are supposed to have as people? Especially in our society, we get confused. We forget this. We get caught up in all the distractions and we forget what the reality of this world really is. That we, all of us, this entire world, are under the judgment of sin. We are doomed. Merry Christmas. But we can't forget this. We're getting ready for, to travel or to have people at our homes. We're putting meal plans together. We're trying to figure out, maybe do some last-minute shopping, trying to avoid the rush. We have all these demands on us related to Christmas, but we forget the reality of that first Christmas. It was a dark dark time and place and the world is doomed because of sin and God's judgment upon it. Anna and Simeon had felt this viscerally in their life. It felt doom. It felt hardship. They were born in and raised under the harshest of circumstances. But God has ordained that Jesus, the brightest light that the universe has ever known, should shine in the darkest of times and in the darkest of places. And so this morning, one of the questions we have to ask is, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting to have the holidays done so we can move on with the year and be done with all the Christmas carols on all the radio stations? I mean, what are we waiting for today? Another question, what hardships have you had to endure? Are you having to endure and live through? How might you be tired, really tired of waiting on God for whatever it is that you're hoping or expecting him to provide? You've waited a long time, months, years. How do we identify with Simeon or Anna not knowing when salvation will arrive? They didn't know that was the day. They didn't know when they walked, woke up, when they walked into the temple that morning, that that's when Jesus was going to come. It was just like any other of the tens of thousands of days that they had lived. Please know that this is especially difficult in our world today, this idea of waiting. We live in a world that demands instant gratification, more so than any other time in history, any other place in the world instant results. We, our society, does not know how to wait. I recently read a, a fact that in spite of all the wealth and income and the, the money that's out there, we as a people, America, save less as a percentage of our income than any society ever has. We have nothing, by and large, ready for tomorrow, next 
month, next year, 10 years from now. Everything's now. Everything's consumed. Everything's in the moment. And so if we struggle to wait, we should know that that's part of the brokenness of this world. Our enemy, the devil, would love nothing more than for us to think that our waiting on God, this patience that he's asking of us, is new and foreign and is something that the people of God should not do. That is a lie. And it is wrong. The people of God have always had to wait, had to learn to wait and trust in and wait on God. Isaiah 40, 31, one of my favorite Bible verses says this for those of you who struggle with waiting. It's one that I learned as a child and I still think of and recite today. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We need to encourage each other that waiting for God is normal and righteous. And he works in and around us. Even as it appears God might be doing nothing, if we are his children, he is doing something. He is doing more than something. He is preparing us for Jesus. Simeon and Anna waited and God blessed them. Bless them immeasurably for it. But they weren't idle in their waiting. They kept busy. Our second point is they worshiped while they waited. After everything they had been through, after seeing their beloved nation fall under the rule of Rome's terror and Herod's wickedness, Simeon and Anna held fast decade after decade and did the only thing they could do that was under their control. They worshiped whenever they got the chance. Simeon and Anna were both in the temple serving the Lord on that day, worshiping him as they waited on him to fulfill his promise. They could not control how the Romans treated them. They could not control the wickedness of King Herod oppressing them and the Jewish people. They could not control when God would fulfill his promise. They could not control whether they got the promotion. They could not control whether they got the financial increase. They could not control whether they got the job that they wanted. They could not control whether they got that relationship they had been hoping for. They could not control whether their child responded in the way that we were hoping that they would respond. They had no control except for how they would regard the Lord in the waiting. And so it is with us. That false sense of control, it doesn't exist. We have a choice. How are we going to regard the Lord while he makes us wait? And wait. And possibly wait. The only control they had was their choice of whether they were going to worship God regardless of the circumstances that life brought them. And they did worship. Day after day after day, it says... For over a hundred years and through the worst of circumstances, Anna worshiped day and night. And Simeon, it says, was righteous and devout, meaning that he was faithful daily, pursuing the Lord. They practiced what the Bible tells us to do, both Old Testament and New. In Psalm 118, verse 24, we are told, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Not because I got the pay raise, not because I got the promotion, not because my kid got the scholarship to school that he needed, not because I'm now in a relationship after being really lonely for a long time. No, we rejoice because today is the day the Lord has made, period. We rejoice because of life, because of who God is. And in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, we're told this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Not give thanks when you're doing well and grumble through the hard times. No. Give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say how to do that. It doesn't explain exactly why and how that's going to be easy to do. It just simply tells us to do it. When Jerusalem's being besieged by the Romans, give thanks. When Herod's tax collectors have just taken more from you than you actually have to give, and you have suffered in some capacity because of that, give thanks. That's part of the Christian life. It's seeing faithfully what God is doing even when what we're experiencing does not match with that. Well, how did they worship? It's important for us to know, well, Jeremy, how do we worship? What does this mean? Well, there's two things I want to encourage us with this morning as far as how to worship. First is they worship daily. It says they were daily in the temple. They sought the presence of the Lord every day. Now, how do we do this? Rooftops not open every day. We don't have this wonderful band up here every day. It's hard to come and to worship. Well, that's worship, but worship is more than that. It's seeking the Lord daily. And this might sound cliche, but I hope it doesn't. It's opening his Bible, his holy word, who he has promised through his spirit to speak to us, to encourage us, to convict us of sin, to correct us, to give us hope where hope might not appear to be possible. This is what it means to pursue God daily. Here in a week and a half, if you aren't reading your Bible regularly or you're not sure what to do, you can find a Through the Bible in a Year program, which will get you roughly three chapters a day. If that's too much, do the In the Bible in Two Years program. Just Google it. There's even an In the Bible Through Three Years program. We can do chapter a day. But getting in the Word of God will avail the Spirit to us and us to Him and for God to speak to us as we wait. So we worship God daily. Secondly, we worship God in community. They went to the temple. The temple is where people were. They didn't go away to their little prayer room in their home and just gut it out every day. Every day they were in the temple. They were worshiping. That's where the people were. God's people come together with God's people, especially when times are hard. They came to church on Sunday. They came to small group on Tuesday or Thursday night or on Friday morning. They came to prayer meetings when there were prayer opportunities just to come to be encouraged, to pray for others, to be prayed for. They were not alone as they waited, and that is the temptation. It is so strong that when we struggle, that we withdraw while we wait, and we just try to gut through it. This is the opposite of what God tells us to do while we wait. When I think of waiting, I think of my grandpa. Harley just celebrated his 95th birthday up in Michigan back on October 30th. A little about my grandpa. He's 95 years old. Uh, he's a World War II veteran who came home from the war in his early 20s, got a job as a postal carrier, delivered mail for 40 years, uh, met and married my grandma in his early 20s after coming home from the war. They were not believers when they got married. My mom remembers growing up the first several years being a hard, volatile home. And then some folks from the Baptist church shared Jesus with my grandma and she gave her life to Christ. Her transformation so impacted my grandpa that he repented of his sins and he gave his life to Christ. And they began serving the Lord as a family and raising my mom and their siblings. In the 70s, 
as there was this, I don't know if you're aware, there was a spiritual revival in the Catholic and the Protestant churches. The Jesus people, kind of that post-Woodstock 60s promise of euphoria and pleasure that crashed and burned and people came to Jesus in the thousands. He had a spiritual awakening in that time. And it carried him through, carries him through to today, if you ask him about it. My grandma, they were coming out of a concert in 1990. My, he and my grandma were in their early 60s, and she had a brain aneurysm right back here, bled out in a matter of minutes, was dead before the paramedics arrived, held her in his arms as her eyes went up into her, her head and watched her pass. Mourned her for three years, met another woman named Signa, who was much different than Grandma. She was very outgoing and exuberant. Grandma was more reserved. She was a little shocked to the family when, uh, when they did get married, as you can imagine. She was great, and he loved her dearly. And they partnered together at their church, leading the senior ministry. He was an elder in the church, just a post carrier, postal carrier, became an elder. In his 80s, he felt the Lord calling him to be ordained in the denomination, and he spent four years studying and training in his 80s to be ordained, traveled to Kansas to fulfill his ordination at age 84. And a couple years after that, my grandma was afflicted with dementia, that slow, terrible, debilitating disease. And we watched her slowly diminish. And my grandpa loved her. He cared for her so well. We'd talk on the phone and he would he'd be frustrated that he couldn't do more. And I just told him, Grandpa, your love for her, your caring for her, is the greatest testimony of the Lord's love in and through you. And that's all you can do right now. She passed a couple years ago. And we just celebrated his 95th birthday, as I said, and I asked him, so, Grandpa, you've got your, your, your wits about you, you've got your health. And he said, Jeremy, I'm ready to go home today if it's the Lord's will. But if he's going to keep me here, I have one prayer. I want to be useful. I want to be useful. At age 95, he's worried about not being useful for God and for the kingdom. While he waits, he worships. Thirdly, and finally, as we close this morning, Jesus is worth the wait. We see from both Simeon and Anna that Jesus is worth the wait. Whatever life had brought them, whatever their expectations of life had been, when they saw the baby Jesus that day, the infant Messiah, they rejoiced and gave thanks because when they saw Jesus, they knew, they believed he had been worth every moment. He was worth every heartache, he was worth every tear, every friend or family member who had been assaulted or taken away or killed by their rulers, by the wickedness that was in and around them. He was worth every hungry and cold night when the tax collectors had taken what was meant for dinner that night. And that's the challenge for us this Christmas. Is Jesus enough? We're three days away, two days if it's Christmas Eve. And is Jesus enough? Sure, we sing the songs and we celebrate his birth this week because that's what Christians do, right? But do we truly worship him? 
Do we truly see him and seek after him and worship him and celebrate the birth of the infant Messiah? Realizing what God is doing, has done, and will do. We believe deep in our hearts that the loss we feel, the hurts we endure, are worth it completely because someday we will see the face of Jesus. Paul writes this very thing in Romans 8 when he says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This Christmas as we wait, let's remind ourselves, let's remind each other that Jesus is worth the wait. Separate from everything else, Jesus is worth the wait. And unlike me in that movie theater at the end of that movie, that moment of happiness will be so worth all of the sadness and hardship that we may have to endure, have had to endure to get to that place. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. So grateful that you gave us Jesus. We are so grateful that this little baby was the fulfillment of so much, so many promises people in darkness are holding to. And it was the beginning of an amazing plan that we rest in here today, 2,000 years later. May we worship. May we celebrate. May we have the spirit of Anna and Simeon in the temple, giving thanks and praise to you that you have come, Lord Jesus, that you are here. It's in your name.